You're listening to the Rec2 Tech podcast. We connect the tech thought leaders across the globe to deliver content that allows you to make better career and hiring decisions. Oh, so as some of you know, um, I've been essentially filming a, a bunch of live broadcasts that are focused on encouraging people to make smarter and better career decisions and hiring decisions. And I think there's a whole bunch of topics that we can cover, but one that keeps coming up is about how to create an unbiased working environment. So I've had a conversation recently with Sydney Prescott that went really well, um, but I think essentially what it made me realize is that this is a subject that is not discussed enough um, and there's really not enough clarity around how we can actually start to make positive change. So whether we're going to be able to, you know, unlock that secret during this conversation, you know, I don't know, but I think we're going to be able to talk about some things that, that people are thinking about but not actually discussing internally within the businesses. Um, and I've got a couple of people with me today that, um, one, I know very well, she works with a business, um, her name's Lauren Redding. She's actually a senior account manager at Darwin Recruitment who has a wealth of knowledge and experience in terms of building relationships with some Fortune 500 businesses and, and many others uh, internally. And she's a big advocate for um, inclusion and diversity and women in tech. So, um, you know, what I was keen on doing is getting her opinions on how things were internally within our business, how she sees things from her perspective, and then trying to kind of um, play them off with our other speakers. So welcome to the show, Lauren. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, I'll give like a brief introduction now and then I'll pass yeah. it over to Sarah. Go for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as Lewis said, I'm one of the account managers for Darwin. I've been here for a few years and my kind of primary focus is building relationships and kind of focusing on, yeah, the top level of people I work with to make sure, yeah, they're happy with the relationships that we've got. Um, in terms of building an unbiased work environment, it's definitely a topic that I want everyone to be talking about. And I'm really glad that you've taken the initiative to set this up. Um, I do think it's worth noting that, you know, we all do speak from our own privilege. Um, so kind of yep. want to prelude our discussion before we get into it, just to say that obviously the opinions that I have, and I'm sure you guys as well, we all know that we come from a point of privilege. And as much as we try and educate and speak out for people who don't have the voice and call out people who are incorrect, um, if you do find something that we're saying is obviously wrong or offensive, then correct us. We are open and eager to learn. Um, so I just want to put that out there before we start. Um, but yes, that's uh, kind of me in a nutshell. Absolutely. Thanks, Lauren. Um, so alongside Lauren, we're lucky enough to have uh, Sarah Naravi, who's joining us and going to be talking about her journey as a woman in tech. Um, now, if you're not familiar with Sarah's background, first and foremost, she's a highly technical data scientist by trade who picked up her master's and her bachelor's from UCLA. Um, and she's also worked in both a research and a professional setting. And right now is working as a financial analyst at Snap Inc. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you, Lewis, and thank you, Lauren. Um, I'm very, very honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll dive into it, but kind of echoing what Lauren said, there will be, you know, parts of my journey that I feel like may or may not resonate with uh, certain folks, and I'm excited to get into this discussion. Awesome. So we've picked out a few little areas within um, this particular topic that we're going to cover, and I think one thing I wanted to put out there is that I, I truly back building and creating diverse working environments, but I do believe that you should never create diversity for the sake of just creating diversity. So I think one of the first points is 
that I wanted to talk about is, is why is it so hard to actually create an unbiased working environment? Well, actually, to that point, right? So there was um, there there was some research done by BCG that actually shows that innovation drives diversity and diversity drives innovation. So mm-hmm. it goes both ways. And so actually, whether or not you want to see it from like a social justice uh, issue of creating diversity being important for future generations, et cetera, et cetera, there actually is business value added when you create um, leadership teams and diverse working environments all together. And why is that the case, right? So like great to know that the research exists to show that, but thinking uh, just generally like, okay, think about a room of, of folks who go in to discuss uh, some topic and uh, you know they have this business problem and they know they all look the same. And so they make assumptions about what the other people in the room are thinking. And so it's like, okay, um, do I really need to bring all my best and brightest ideas to the table if I know and make an assumption that everyone's going to think the same as me versus if I know if I'm walking into um, a room and it could be any type of diversity, right? Like uh, career diversity, um, educational diversity, nationality diversity, age, et cetera, right? It could be anything. And you know you're walking into a room and you say, okay, well, these people might not agree with me. And so I need to now make a case for my opinion. And now we get to bring all our best and brightest ideas to the table and start having really rich discussions around how to solve that problem. So yeah. you, you touched on something really interesting there as well, which is the affinity bias in that when a lot of these companies are created, people kind of look for the people like them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these to put it bluntly, a lot of the white middle-aged guys who created companies tapped up their old college roommates who had the same background, came from the same sort of culture and the same sort of economic areas. And they built companies around this affinity of the people they know. So it's super interesting you say that because you're so right. Like you get the best ideas and the best kind of discussions from the diverse groups who discuss it and kind of bring up these topics. But the problem is, and this goes back to your point, Lewis, one of the struggles, is that because of the affinity bias, you have so many companies that are grounded and created from people who look for people like them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's one of the things that leads into that as well, which always sticks with me, is um, this idea of like a culture fit. So you get a lot of companies that will maybe not hire someone or not proceed because they'll say, oh, it's not a good culture fit. And kind of what they're doing there is excusing the fact that this person is different than the people around them. Right. And I think, actually, that's perfect. Bring in people who are a different culture. Like, this is exactly what we want to drive. It shouldn't be a reason not to proceed. It should be a reason to throw everything at it, you know? Yeah, 100%. And like now, right now, I was thinking back to my original um, interview with uh, the first agency that I worked for. And it was, like you said, a startup, all dudes, all the co-founders are guys. Hey, my buddy. All right. You, want to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's a very bro culture. And I'm thinking right now about like how I even got the opportunity with the recruiter that reached out to me. Right. And so the foundation is that you have the technical skill set. 
Um, you have, you, you check off the marks for what they're looking for. But when you come into the culture also, like I was shot, I saw them all riding around in scooters and like, so <laughs> like I was a tomboy growing up. Like I actually leaned into my feminine side more recently. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's very interesting to talk about, okay, the, you know, how much of your femininity can you bring to work or bring into your life? And I was always a tomboy. So I always had, like, I was had more dude friends than I did chick friends. So like when I walked into this culture and they were riding around in scooters and like, it was just very bro Like it didn't turn me off, but I also did ask them during the interview process, like how many, like how many women do you guys have in your, in your company? Like, is that something that you guys perceive as something important that you will, you know, think about as you, um, you know, as you're hiring? Yeah. And that was something that stuck in his mind. He was like, Sarah, you know, you asked me when you first started, you know, how, like what the ratio, like the, the diversity ratio was here. And like, that's something that's been on top of mind for me since you mentioned that. And that's something that we're taking into consideration. But I think, um, and I'm sure we'll get into it later, is that like, it's a two way street, right? Like, they have to hold it uh, as a focus and a priority on their end, also on our end to consider, hey, this is the culture that we're, we're walking into. And so accepting yeah. it from both sides, right? Yeah, for sure. And uh, with that as well, sorry, Lewis, I'll <laughs> promise no, you in a minute. Just you just reminded me, which made me want to say, um, with that one of the things that comes to mind is the confirmation bias of these guys who, and I keep talking about bias and it's something we'll talk about more as well. Um, but it's, you know, once you start to build a culture of all white men doing the job, you look around and you go, Hey, everyone's doing a good job. Like clearly these are the right people to hire. And you build that confirmation and kind of lie to yourself about the fact that everyone there is the right person for the job. And you've got to be confronting it and you've got to be questioning it and saying, actually, we've got a company of people who are all producing the same ideas, the same products, the same thoughts. And it's, it's not conducive for creativity, you know, and exactly as you said at the beginning, like diversity drives that sort of creativity. Right. But I think also what I realized is that, so I've had to kind of uh, work on my own understanding of these types of cultures. Right. So I was highly troubled uh, in certain instances when I would see that, they didn't take the responsibility, right? So I'm someone who's in charge of leading a company or I'm in charge of leading a conference, for example, right? And I have an all-male lineup or I have an all-male team, right? And so because of, like you're saying, the confirmation bias along with our implicit and explicit biases that we have and just like our comfortability, right? Just like, hey, I'm comfortable with these types of people. They look like me. They talk like me. I'm just going to like, you know... This is the culture that I want to create. And really, it takes it takes like one person to to even highlight that to someone, because sometimes I've had to struggle with this. Like they might not know, (laughs) like as much as I don't want to give them that excuse, (laughs) which I didn't. But I had to come from a place of like, hey, maybe they just don't have anyone around them that's highlighting the fact that they should probably take this into consideration. And so it needs to be uh, either one person or it needs to be the right message that gets sent to them 
from, you know, whoever, it doesn't even matter. Some, in some cases, I've, I'll admit to this, like I've had my message translated through a man to get to another man. <laughs> Just wow. Yeah. And it didn't bother me. Right. Like maybe a little bit. I was like, damn, you know, like <laughs> I wanted to have like said that, but at the end of the day, it did create the change that I, that we wanted. And so yeah. however the message gets sent, as long as there's a raising of awareness and there's an open mindedness of creating that change, then that's all positive. I think yeah. there's something you touched on there that um, essentially like how we're programmed from the beginning. So I'm not a middle aged white man per se. I am a white man. <laughs> I'm getting there. Um, essentially, when I started in, in recruitment or the world of business, my I guess my mindset was when I started doing well, I am going to go out and find people like me. Um, but no one yeah. told me otherwise. And I don't know if that's because I just didn't know or I wasn't trained properly in the beginning. Um, I, I, I genuinely think that's probably where some of the, the issues start. People just, I don't want to take that excuse and go like, it is, it is a good one. But we don't. <laughs> You know, I, yeah. I, I tried to build teams like my own and, and had like replicas of me and it didn't work. In fact, it was terrible. <laughs> um, and then we started to include, you know, people from different backgrounds and, and di- people who had different stories and, and we started to see progress. Um, but I think it starts not just about, you know, thinking how can we create these teams, but right from the beginning, like our schools encouraging this. Yeah. So when these when these guys and girls are coming out of schools, are they going, okay, well, the first thing I'm going to do is think about diversity from, from the start? Because I don't think they are. No. I mean, maybe you can tell me otherwise. It's not but. funded either. No, it's, it, you're absolutely right. And it's, I mean, look at the stats there are today. The women in STEM is what, 22% comparative to men? And that's a massive increase from the 17 it was last year, you know? And it's, it's this sort of thing that it, it's getting better. Um, and I think one of the pitfalls that people make when they talk about diversity and inclusion is that they just view it as women and men. And that does bother me a lot when I yep. talk about diversity and inclusion. It's so easy to do to say, well, look, we've increased the women in our company, but what about ethnicities, backgrounds, economics, geographical? Like exactly as you said, Sarah, it's a combination of so many things that defines diversity and inclusion. And um, I think it can be so easy to kind of look at schooling and say like, oh yeah, well, everyone's taught the same subjects, it's equal. And it's just absolutely not. What we're taught as to what's correct and what's acceptable for different people to go into as careers is wrong and it's outdated. And it's such an old issue with education and it's lack of funding and lack of visibility. There's the great saying that you can't be what you can't see. And that is so true for not just women in tech, but everyone. We need more people of color. We need more people with disabilities. Like there should be a complete spectrum of everyone studying these topics and doing them as a career. And at the moment, we just don't have it. Yeah, tough one. Um, I mean, as you say, it starts in the schools, um, but ultimately it's got to come down to the people who are running these companies. Like diversity and inclusion is a personal thing. It starts with you. You can't say that, oh, you know, we're going to change the company culture. You've got to first look at the people who created that culture, the people who hired in it, the people who looked at around the room and said, yep, this is a good group of people without realizing it wasn't diverse. You've got to go to the complete roots and kind of bare bones of what that company is and how it was built to kind of address it in that sense. 
Right. And if we could go back to the education piece, um, yeah. I remember being shocked, like I, in multiple stages. So, um, I mean, not to go back to like when I was in my, some people have heard this story several times from me, but like, um, so I won't repeat it. But when I, when I went into my master's program in mechanical and I realized that there was such a disparity between the number of guys and the number of girls in those classes. And I would ask the girls because I actually, so because I transitioned into engineering, I wasn't familiar with uh, the, like the in, in, engineering um, environment and the culture at all. But I did come from math, so I knew what to expect there. But I went into like I went into engineering thinking it would be I didn't know what I didn't have any expectations. And I asked some of the girls and I said, you know, like, why aren't there more girls in mechanical engineering? You know, like like this is cool. Like I love the material I'm learning. I really enjoy this. Like it has direct applicability to uh, things that could really change the world. And I and then the, the answers that I got were interesting. Like, oh, well, you know, girls don't want to break their nails in the lab. I was like, what? what? <laughs> it's, a man, it's a man's, you know, they don't want to break their nails in the lab. I was like, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Or it's like, oh, you know, they, you know, didn't like the culture and they went into things that they felt like they can, ex you know, made, you know, that little softer, they went into like uh, administrative stuff. And like, that to me is also discouraging. But when I think about change, I think about, and you mentioned, you know, you can't see what you, what, um, you can't be what you can't see, right? I yeah. think that's a two-way street, right? So some women will be, will look at that and they'll say, yeah, that looks like a discouraging culture. Maybe I don't want to be a part of it. I'm just going to do what's easy, right? So that's a personal choice. So the is it though? Is that a personal choice? Is. That, I don't know. I think if I looked at something and said, that's a horrible culture, I don't want to work in it. Is that my fault as a female or is it the fault of the culture that I'm looking at? So I think it's both, right? So okay. this is where I, I will, this is my common thread for this whole talk is that it's both. That, that the, the educational system needs to put focus on, on considering and, in, and creating an environment that is inclusive. That is, that is something that they should focus on. But also yeah. uh, for us, it shouldn't, like, I look at that and I'm like, this is a challenge. This is great. You know what I mean? Like, this is something like I, I if, if we really want to create uh, the people that eventually the generations, pat, like that, that future generations will look up to, I need to put myself through, unfortunately, um, some terrible, like, and I can tell you numerous stories where I've questioned whether I really wanted to do this, but have felt very strongly in number one, the work that I do. Number two, the importance of my success <laughs> on future generations, even though it is challenging. And I have a choice for which companies to, to join or which companies not to join and which yeah. cultures I want to be a part of and which cultures I don't want to be a part of. So I get to evaluate that. I get to say, hey, you know what? This person who's leading this company, my values don't align with their values. And so I will choose not to join theirs. But yeah. look at this other company and... I can like I love the culture that we have at Snap. Like I can definitely say that, and 
it's been one of the one of the biggest reasons why I joined and one of the biggest reasons why I will I will probably stay here, you know? And yeah. they, they're actively looking at diversity as and inclusion as a focus. Um, and many companies right now are looking introspectively and saying, hey, am I providing a culture that is conducive to a lot, you know, um, to bringing diversity in and am I creating a culture and they're holding themselves accountable, right? And so, I, again, book two-way street on, on yeah. really moving this forward, I think. I do think, though, that choice you talk about does come from a place of privilege because mm-hmm. from... And this is just what I'm listening. There's a, a great podcast that I would recommend, and it's called The Diversity Gap. And um, one of the things they say is that white privilege takes away the imagination of action and the options for people of color. And what it says is that actually you kind of lose sight that you have a choice because you don't see it and you don't see the options ahead of you, you know? So I totally agree that if you've got the choice between two companies and one's a, a culture you don't like and one is a great one, that's an easy choice. But you're faced with only companies where there's no one in any of these companies like you in an industry you're doing. You're faced with difficult choices at every end. Right. So it is absolutely a two-way street. It absolutely is. But I do think that choice does come from a place of privilege. And I think there are people who aren't afforded that choice. And they're the ones that the companies need to really take the steps to include and kind of have these initiatives to launch more and engage more with people in those groups. A hundred percent. And that's where I feel like also um, mentorship programs and, uh, you know, organizations who are focused around building the confidence, because I feel like confidence is a piece where where this right to bridge that gap of like having that choice comes with confidence. Like I remember early on in my career, I didn't have that confidence. Right. And so how I approach situations may not have been from a place of like really uh, going down at the right direction. I was looking for others to kind of help me out, right? And yeah. so the organizations that are held, like geared towards mentorship, gears towards how do you position yourself um, in a place of value so that it is a no brainer for companies to be like, yeah, of course I'm gonna hire this person, right? Yeah. So it's about shaping our, our experience and our, um, our value in a way that others can see that because I do believe that there are, you know, potentially candidates who aren't, you know, who don't have the, a, a way of just, you know, communicating what their value is. And so that that's why they get passed up on, even though they're great candidates. Right. It, yeah. It's interesting you say that because I, I, I had a chat with uh, Nancy Lee, um, who's a, a female in tech who really did work away from the ground and is now, a, a, you know, one of the leading AI product managers at, uh, at a major corporation. And she said that, to stand out, she had to go and learn different skill sets as someone as a product manager. So she actually started doing like speaking courses and different things that would make her bring more value to the table when she was surrounded by, you know, middle-aged white men. Yeah. They were more inclined to want to listen to her because she was able to sit there confidently and deliver her message. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that people should be thinking about as well. How can you diversify your skill set to also, you know, be considered even more so at some of these businesses? I do think on that, though, it's it's worth noting that sometimes companies who put together these mentorships and kind of training programs, what it does is it puts the the burden of change on the people disadvantaged by it is the best way I can put it in that if you create a mentorship that doesn't actually have roots for growth, 
what you're doing is it's, it's just performative. You're saying, hey, here's someone you can look up to, but we're not going to help you change anything. You yeah. know, so there's, there's real limitations if companies don't really drive those programs to the core of their values and say, actually, this is not just for the sake of a mentor or the sake of you having someone to talk to. We're actually going to create these revenues for you to grow and develop in. And I think that's kind of the big kicker for me that I see sometimes and I've, I've seen companies and I've spoken to some colleagues who have the same experience that they've been trained on, oh, you, you don't know how to negotiate, actually. So we're going to train you on how to ask for a better salary. And what that does is it puts the blame on the people disadvantaged by the system to say, you need to do better rather than saying to the system or the company, hey, even if I ask for it, you're not going to give it to me. And that's where your bias is. And that's where the problem is. So I think it, it's got to be taken deeper than just saying, hey, we're going to train you and mentor you. As I say, it's got to go to the core and the value of, hey, we're also going to give you the opportunities and build a system that supports you. Right. So, so in terms of like, we, we've figured that firstly talking about it and then taking action um, from the top down is really important. And then putting in the right procedures and protocols in place that think about people's long-term career. Um, that regardless of what background, color, ethnicity, race, whatever it might be, you know. Um, I've heard a lot of talk recently about AI being involved in the, the interview process in order to try and help with bias. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So this actually reminded me of Amazon's big, I'm sure you guys know, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Big HR project that was scrapped in 2015, right? And so... To me, when I think about AI helping in, uh, you know, uh, making, you know, bringing efficiency into the HR process, I do think that there are gains that can be had there. But do I think that it'll be a fully automated process? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and the, and if you read why why it failed, it's because especially well. There are maybe other industries where, you know, you'll find that it's pretty equal. There's not much, uh, you know, there's not, um, you know, much disparity between, you know, that's pretty diverse. And maybe in those industries, it might help. But especially in tech, where it's been any male-dominated field or any um, field that is overly saturated with, you know, some type of person, right? Uh, whoever that may be, will inherently uh, encourage biases into the outcomes and the predictions of what the, you know, the algorithms that are coming out. And so that's the main, the heart of the problem. And uh, combating that is so hard. And then on top of it, there's an aspect of interpretability and explainability of what the algorithm is doing and why it's ranking uh, candidates in some type of way. And if you can't explain, because whether you know it exists or not, eventually it'll come to light and you're going to have to explain why the algorithm did what it did. Yeah. And, um, and so that piece, I think, is something that, that most companies will not want to own because they know that inherently it will be biased and it won't create... Um, equal opportunities. And so from that perspective, HR will always have, and, and all, and, and the thing is we think about this across the board, right? No, like it's very rare to see 
uh, situations where something will be 100% automated with no manual intervention, right? Yeah. So from the from a place of automating, like let's say uh, there are. Um, there are systems, I forget what they're called, uh, that'll go in, <laughs> maybe you guys know, uh, that, that read the resumes and highlight keywords, et cetera, et cetera. And so that part can be automated. Hey, do the, is there a high match rate between what I'm looking for and what this resume is presenting? But then there's also issues with that, right? Because sometimes yeah. the descriptions that are put together aren't even put by the, the hiring manager. It's all mismatch, you know, like, so... There's a matching problem from the get-go when the description is off and then the resume is maybe tailored to match that. Just You know, you're matching for the yeah. wrong job at that point. So Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the interesting you say about the job description as well, Lewis, you, you maybe know a bit more about this because you work with a company that talks about gendered language, right? And how it kind yep. of cues it and selecting the right words. And that's the same problem, right? You teach a system to match from a job description to a CV. If one's gendered, it's going to find it in the other ones, you know, right. and it, it just continues the same bias throughout the system. Right. But I, I do think AI could be so good. It has I, the potential to be amazing. Right. And that's where I feel like also um, I think they took it a step further and they said, you know, maybe if AI was to take in the, the video footage of the interviews. Right. Oh, so yeah. to take visual cues of how someone is responding, the things that they're saying and maybe put that through a system. I don't know. Also, it's like, again, it'll all depend on on what people are putting into the algorithm in terms of things that they think like what are good predictors, right? And some people yeah. have different personalities. Like, what if I'm shy? Is that going to go against me, <laughs> right, in an interview? If yeah, I'm... maybe. So, should, like... should an interview process be, should we be dehumanizing it? Like, I, I think that, you know, part of the, the entire, well, the exciting part about joining a business and really getting a feel for, for who they are is, is actually talking to people that work there and, and not having a visual cue that might make you figure out how they're feeling or ask a certain question. Like, I don't think we should be trying to take the human element out of, of the process. I, I personally am not a big advocate for, for these systems or tools. I, I don't think that – I personally don't think it will help. Right. I think they could be so good. And, like, I know it's very <laughs> idealistic at the moment. I know. I disagree. <laughs> it's, okay, hear me out. It, it's such an idealistic view of you have this amazing system. It is completely unbiased, whereas every human has some unconscious bias, Right. We can train a system not to have that, but, and it's a big but, we don't have the data to be able to create that system. No one does. There is not enough a diverse set of data anywhere for any company within technology who can say, hey, we are completely unbiased. Every applicant for the last five, 10 years is completely diverse. It doesn't exist. So we have to train something to do a system that we don't know how to do ourselves. And I think that's the biggest issue that we're lying to a computer to literally create false data in hopes that it will create something that we can't do. Right. So the ideals of what it can be and what automation AI can do are amazing. It can completely remove bias in every set and it can open geographical and economical, but <laughs> we have to train it to do that. And I don't think anyone yet is capable of doing that. 
Right. And I think that this also plays into, so like, that's a perfect, amazing, idealistic situation, right? But with every algorithm, there is a false positive and a false negative rate. And right. And so like back to Lewis's point, when you're dehumanizing it and you're saying, hey, so um, the algorithm, you know, maybe falsely uh, rejected this person. That's a that's a human <laughs> that you've just affected their uh, their career path because you have chosen to automate the system and not ha- like take into account all, you know, like the, the human aspect of it. And yeah. so from that, like, and that plays into kind of, um, I'm thinking about Angela who works in healthcare, like these types of algorithms end up seriously affecting people's lives. And so to um, expect that we'll ever get there, maybe, right? I don't know. Uh, But to to think that we will never play a hand in kind of, you know, like, uh, in, in people's futures and people's careers is just, is, is, I, I don't think that that'll, uh, that'll ever really fly. Right. <laughs> um, so, but I, I mean, love it. gets that, too good, Lauren, me and you might have a job. It's <laughs> 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 true. It's true. Well, look, I, I think especially at the moment, there's a huge opportunity for companies to be more diverse because they can afford to look elsewhere. And um, I just think, for example, okay, companies who are hiring currently, they're going about it the same way they always have. They're posting on their own job boards, they're waiting for people to apply, and they're looking at CVs of people who already work there as the ideal candidate and judging all new applicants against them. It's not true for everyone. It's a a sweeping statement. But there's such a good, easy opportunity for them to say, hey, let's not look in the same place. Let's go to different agencies. Let's try and find people in different areas from different disabilities, different gender, sexuality, orientation, background, ethnicity, anything to drive that diversity, you know? And it just, if they look somewhere different, they'll find different people. And I think so often, and you said this earlier, Sarah, we just get comfortable with our own processes and comfortable with the way we work and used to it and it becomes easy. And I just think that's such a fault. And if that means I have to be a massive advocate for AI for the future to get people to change how they recruit now, I'll do it. I'm fully behind it. I don't mind. Also, I mean, you touch on a good point, right? So it's like this explore exploit trade off, right? And so if we're not creating um, a system, like a system will only be able to optimize on the existing set. And so if we are not uh, including the explore aspect of it, okay, let's explore um, you know, including diverse candidates and see how it pans out because they need enough sufficient data to to really optimize on the exploring uh, uh, part of the data, right? And so to eventually exploit. Um, but you know, until we get there, until we've created uh, right this two way, like companies taking a priority of encouraging diversity and us as candidates, you know, really encouraging a growth mindset and thinking, okay, like, let's be up for the challenge, even though it might not be um, exactly what I want at first, right? Um, let's let's yeah. build up that confidence and let's really work together to um, empower each other and really bring change into the into tech and across all industries, right? And then to eventually have the opportunity to create these systems that might actually prove out to be um, hopefully as, as, as close to uh, automated yeah. as Lauren wants uh, as possible. So, <laughs> yeah. 
So I think it's um, it's an interesting time as well, because when we think about what's going on in the world with this pandemic and, and everyone working from home, and the big question is, how do you actually start to, to think about diversity? Is working from home a very good opportunity for us to start doing that? What, yeah. what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, I think the biggest thing for me about remote working is that it does open geographically which allows you to get a more diverse workforce. And it also opens up to different disabilities or abilities, you know, because often when you have people in companies and yeah, for example, our, our office is on the 15th floor and yes, you get a lift up here, but if there's ever a fire alarm or anything, you can't get a lift down, you know? And it's these sort of thoughts that actually make our office not accessible for people who maybe need a wheelchair or maybe need crutches to move about. But having remote working, having people work from home, removes that it levels the playing field to say actually anyone who's capable of using their technology and that's most people nowadays can do the job and so I like that as kind of a leveler because it, it does open it up a little bit more so I, I think it's a good step and a good opportunity to take advantage of right I, I love that I think Lauren summarized that very well um I think it plays into to both people like there's people with personalities like me. I'm suffering. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like yeah. God, I just want to be in the office, you know, but I, <laughs> I know. But in terms of leveling out the playing field and really being able to allow uh, people of all different, like you mentioned, I think, uh, especially in that case, uh, people who are, you know, uh, have di different disabilities. I think that this could, um, I love how you called it abilities. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's actually great. And so, yeah, I haven't really thought about that too much, but I love the way that Lauren summarized it. So, yeah, I think ageism is one that I really like the opportunity yeah. within working from home as well, because I guess if you are a little bit older, it, it, for me, at least, if I was in a recruitment business and I was 45, when predominantly most of the people in, in the industry are in their early 20s, um, it might feel slightly uncomfortable to be in that environment and working from home does create the opportunity to, to eliminate that yeah. um, and really focus purely on the experience. Right. Yeah. I think that it could serve as like a way of changing perceptions because it's not going to be, well, at least I hope this isn't going to be forever. Right. And so this could be an opportunity to spark change and acceptance yeah. and then eventually translate that into real life. Right. <laughs> this this cool. DC uh, experience is great, but um, eventually <laughs> like. <laughs> uh, You're ready for normal life. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, I think that this could be a, a very nice uh, opportunity to take advantage of. Yeah, for sure. And I think especially something I've seen during COVID is a lot of companies have started to drive and kind of focus on well-being of their staff. Mm. And with that, they've actually started reviewing kind of how happy are people, how much do people engage with our core values and our culture. And as we said before, they're now starting to look at actually real transformative change as to what they can do to make it better for their employees. And right. Now is the perfect time for everyone in every company to be driving diversity and inclusion with that. Right. Because if you're going to be looking at your human capital and their well-being, you've got to drive DNI with it. Mm -hmm. Right. It'll be interesting to see how this translates when we kind of, uh, you Get know, the the office, yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much of it sticks and how, how much of it, because unfortunately, like we are very habitual 
you know, and undoing our biases will take time, right? Like even when you think of reform and you think of people who have fought for change, they may or may not have lived long enough to see the impact of their change. And so in, in our cases, when we're, when we're making, when we're making a conscious effort to, um, kind of change people's perceptions, change people, like help people think about their implicit and their explicit biases and the way they interact with people. Like it'll be an interesting uh, case study to just see how things uh, transition uh, as we go go back. Yeah. And I think it's really important as well that completely, as you say, to confront people's biases, companies need to start training people how to get around this and teaching them techniques to, overcome their own bias whether it's unconscious implicit explicit whatever bias it is and everyone's got one right. there needs to be intensive training for people hiring to say actually this is your bias and this is a way that you can overcome it or at least not have it as the primary decision maker when you're making when you're hiring people you know and right. i think that training is so important and it it's going to take us a step away from just the performative diversity of, as I mentioned earlier, companies saying, hey, like, here's a mentor. Oh, we're so diverse. And you're like, no, that's uh, not enough. And I think actually giving this training and kind of pushing it a step further, you do start to get real change from it. And that's, well, what I hope happens over the sort of coming months. Right. And by normalizing, by normalizing things like that, it becomes less, like we start eliminating those biases by normalizing things that don't at first seem normal, right? So like yeah. when Obama became president, I think everyone who was born into his his presidency, that's normal for them. Yeah, right? and that's so nice. That's so amazing. Like, I love that. I love that that becomes normal of anyone who sees right. it, you know? Yeah. And like, as, as much as like we are habitual creatures, as you say, I think we're more than capable of making the change. And I think people are so scared of having the conversation because it's, uncomfortable and often yeah our own privilege makes us a bit ashamed about talking about it but I I think as uncomfortable as it makes us it's nowhere near as bad as the people who are disadvantaged by the system you know so we have to have the conversations and we have to be the people who are vocal about it yeah agreed so um I'm going to kind of just give one piece of advice as a takeaway and I'm hoping you two can do the same as well so for me it's just it's okay not to know um if if you're if you're thinking about diversity and inclusion, you've already made the right step forward. Um, keep following up, stay consistent, and um, and hopefully, you know, things will start to move in the right direction. But like I said, it's okay not to know. Yeah. That's kind of my takeaway from for this. Yeah, I love that, and it and yeah, I think starting the conversations, at least being cued in, right, and taking some responsibility for once you once you unco- once you know that you don't know, <laughs> like, unfortunately, you realize that what you don't know is so much. And yeah. so <laughs> that yeah. can get overwhelming. I remember, you know, like when, when, you know, the protests started happening and, you know, there became this huge emphasis on, you know, uh, racial inequalities and, and really le- leaning into that and learning about it. You realize how much you've been ignorant towards, right? And so uh, navigating that space and like really taking the responsibility on yourself, I think that it goes both ways where, you know, we come from a place of like wanting to learn, but also like 
the people on the other side. So whoever's the, the disadvantaged party is like, I'm exhausted trying to tell you that I'm, you know, feeling some type of way based on your behavior. Like, so t- knowing that we have a responsibility to learn uh, the things that we don't know and um, start having these conversations around what matters and how to implement change and being just even just having that thought can be the change that you need, right? It's like, oh, hey, I said something and then taking a step back and be like, should I have said, right? Like, (laughs) even just coming from a place of caring that you say you said something that may or may not be acceptable. And uh, starting to like, you know, change those behaviors slowly. Again, we can't expect an overnight change of everyone knowing everything and everyone changing their behaviors overnight, but, and it's a slow progression. And so keeping that empathy, but also holding that responsibility. Yeah, for sure. And my final takeaway is very similar to yours in that be open for criticism. You know, if you don't know, or if it's not relevant to you, be quiet and listen that's just as powerful to learn and engage and develop your own knowledge is great be a good ally like speak out when you see the issues and for companies diversity isn't a one-off initiative it's not some marketing ploy it is real change and it is changing the institution and the structure and it's training people to overcome their bias and there's great opportunities for driving diversity and inclusion and everyone should be doing it right yeah, love that. So I, I imagine that we could continue talking about this for, for hours. Um, it's kind of, it is really an endless topic and and there's so much more that all of us need to learn. Um, I'm going to continue running these episodes. I'm sure, you, you know, you two are more than welcome to come back on. And, and if you find any other particular topics you, you want to discuss and the same for anyone who's tuned in now as well, if there's something you want to actually get out there that's related to tech and hiring, um, you know, hopefully this is the place to be. But I'm going to also list a bunch of people um, that I've seen on LinkedIn who really do speak out um, that are worth following, Sarah being one of them. Uh, myself and Lauren are also, um, I don't want to say influencers by any stretch, but we, we, do, we do contribute every now and then to, to LinkedIn. So, um, yeah, we're going to put a list of people that are, are worth following that are, are really making the right steps towards creating an unbiased working environment. And, and that's it. Thanks for, thanks for joining. Thank you.